0: There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Rowe, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History. Brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. December 25. On this date in history, in the year 6, Christ is born? Although most Christians celebrate December 25 as the birthday of Jesus Christ, Few in the first two Christian centuries claimed any knowledge of the exact day or year in which he was born. The oldest existing record of a Christmas celebration is found in a Roman almanac that tells of a Christ's Nativity festival led by the Church of Rome in 336 AD. The precise reason why Christmas came to be celebrated on December 25 remains obscure, but most researchers believe that Christmas originated as a Christian substitute for pagan celebrations of the winter solstice. To early Christians, and to many Christians today, the most important holiday of the Christian calendar was Easter, which commemorates the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, as Christianity began to take hold in the Roman world, in the early 4th century, Church leaders had to contend with the popular Roman pagan holiday commemorating the birthday of the unconquered sun, Natalis Solis Invicti, the Roman name for the winter solstice. Every winter, Romans honored the pagan god Saturn, the god of agriculture, with Saturnalia, a festival that began on December 17 and usually ended on or around December 25. With the winter solstice celebration, in honor of the beginning of the new solar cycle. This festival was a time of merrymaking and families and friends would exchange gifts. At the same time, Mithrasim, worship of the ancient Persian god of light, was popular in the Roman army and the cult held some of its most important rituals on the winter solstice. After the Roman emperor, Constantine I, converted to Christianity in 312 and sanctioned Christianity, church leaders made efforts to appropriate the winter solstice holidays and thereby achieve a more seamless conversion to Christianity for the emperor's subjects. In rationalizing the celebration of Jesus' birthday in late December, church leaders may have argued that since the world was allegedly created on the spring equinox late March, so too would Jesus have been conceived by God on that date. The Virgin Mary, pregnant with the Son of God, would hence have given birth to Jesus nine months later on the winter solstice. From Rome, the Christ's nativity celebration spread to other Christian churches to the west and east, and soon, most Christians were celebrating Christ's birth on December 25. To the Roman celebration was later added other winter solstice rituals observed by various pagan groups, such as the lighting of the Yule Log and decorations with evergreens by Germanic tribes. The word Christmas— Entered the English language originally as Christus Maes, meaning Christ Mass or Festival of Christ in Old English. A popular medieval feast was that of Saint Nicholas of Myra, a saint said to visit children with gifts and admonitions just before Christmas. The story evolved into the modern practice of leaving gifts for children, said to be brought by Santa Claus, a derivative of the Dutch name for Saint Nicholas, Sinterklaas. December 26. On this date in history, in the year 1946, Bugsy Siegel opens the Flamingo Hotel. Mobster Bugsy Siegel opens the glitzy Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada on this date. Well-known singer and comedian Jimmy Durante headlined the night's entertainment with music by Cuban bandleader Xavier Cugat. Some of the infamous gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel's Hollywood friends including actors George Raft, George Sanders, Sonny Tufts, and George Jessel, were in attendance. The grand opening of the Flamingo Hotel, however, was a flop. Bad weather kept many other Hollywood guests from arriving, and because gamblers had no rooms at the hotel, they took their winnings and gambled elsewhere. The casino lost $300,000 in the first week of operation. Siegel, and his New York partners had invested $1 million in a property already under construction by Billy Wilkerson, owner of The Hollywood Reporter, as well as some very popular nightclubs on the Sunset Strip. Wilkerson had wanted to recreate the Sunset Strip in Las Vegas with a European-style hotel with luxurious rooms, a spa, health club, showroom, golf course, nightclub, and upscale restaurants. But he soon ran out of money due to the high cost of materials immediately after the war. Siegel, who held the largest interest in the racing publication Transamerica Wire, was drawn to Las Vegas in 1945 by his interest in legalized gambling and off-track betting. He purchased the El Cortez Hotel for six hundred thousand dollars and later sold it for a one hundred and sixty-six thousand dollar profit. Siegel and his organized crime buddies used the profits to influence Wilkerson to accept new partners. Siegel took over the project and supervised the building, naming it after his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, whose nickname was The Flamingo because of her red hair and long legs. Two weeks after the grand opening, the Flamingo closed down. It reopened on March 1, 1947, as The Fabulous Flamingo. Siegel forced Wilkerson out in April, and by May, The resort reported a profit, but it wasn't enough to save Siegel. Convinced that Siegel wasn't giving them a square count, it is widely believed that his partners in organized crime had him killed while he was reading the paper on June 20, 1947, at the Hills, Beverly Hills Mansion. Hill was in Paris, having flown the coop after a fight with Siegel ten days prior. The crime remains unsolved to this day. Surviving a series of name and ownership changes, The hotel is known today as the Flamingo Las Vegas. December 27. On this date in history, in the year 1941, the Office of Price Administration begins to ration automobile tires. The Federal Office of Price Administration initiates its first rationing program in support of the American effort in World War II. It mandates that from this day on, no driver will be permitted to own more than five automobile tires. President Roosevelt established the Office of Price Administration and Civilian Supply in April 1941 to stabilize prices and rents and prevent unwarranted increases in them to prevent profiteering, hoarding, and speculation, to assure that defense appropriations were not dissipated by excessive prices, to protect those with fixed incomes from undue impairment of their living standards, to assist in securing adequate production, and to prevent a post-emergency collapse of values. The OPA, its name was streamlined in August 1941, was responsible for two types of rationing programs. The first limited the purchase of certain commodities—tires, cars, metals, typewriters, bicycles, stoves, and rubber shoes—to people who had demonstrated a special need for them. The second limited the quantity of things like butter, coffee, sugar, cooking fat, gasoline, and non-rubber soles, which every citizen was allowed to buy. As a result, of course, The black market flourished. Studies estimated that 25% of all purchases during the war were illegal. Japanese occupations in the Far East had made it impossible to get rubber from plantations in the Dutch East Indies, and what little rubber was available went straight to airplane and munitions factories. Because no one had yet figured out how to make really high quality artificial rubber, the OPA especially wanted to encourage people to care for the automobile tires they already had ads, urged people to put less wear on their tires by driving in carpools. When you ride alone, you ride with Hitler, said one poster. Another announced, to win this war, more people have got to enjoy riding in fewer cars. To conserve rubber and gasoline, the national victory speed limit was 35 miles per hour. Meanwhile, Scrap rubber drives collected old raincoats, garden hoses, and bathing caps. Rationing and recycling collected items like tin cans and used cooking fat for reuse was a way to make ordinary citizens feel like they were taking part in one ad calling a fighting unit on the home front. During the war, the OPA rationed almost every commodity it could think of. But by the end of 1945, only two rationing programs for sugar and for rubber tires remained in place. Tire rationing finally ended on December 31, 1945. December 28, on this date in history in the year 1869, America's first Labor Day. The Knights of Labor, a labor union of tailors in Philadelphia, hold the first Labor Day ceremonies in American history the Knights of Labor was established as a secret society of Pennsylvanian tailors early in the year and later grew into a national body that played an important role in the labor movement of the late 19th century. The first annual observance of Labor Day was organized by the American Federation of Labor in 1844, which resolved in a convention in Chicago that the first Monday in September be set aside as a laborer's national holiday. In 1887, Oregon became the first state to designate Labor Day as a holiday, and in 1894, Congress designated the first Monday in September a legal holiday for all federal employees and the residents of the District of Columbia. December 29. On this date in history, in the year 1845, Texas enters the Union. Six months after the Congress of the Republic of Texas accepts U.S. annexation, Texas is admitted to the United States as the twenty-eighth state. After gaining independence from Spain in the 1820s, Mexico welcomed foreign settlers to sparsely populated Texas and a large group of Americans led by Stephen F. Austin settled along the Brazos River. The Americans soon outnumbered the resident Mexicans and, by the 1830s, attempts by the Mexican government to regulate these semi-autonomous American communities led to rebellion. In March 1836, in the midst of armed conflict with the Mexican government, Texas declared its independence from Mexico. The Texas Volunteers initially suffered defeat against the forces of Mexican General Santa Ana, the Alamo Fell, and Sam Houston's troops were forced into an eastward retreat. However, in late April, Houston's troops surprised a Mexican force at San Jacinto, and Santa Ana was captured, bringing to an end to Mexico's efforts to subdue Texas. The citizens of the Independent Republic of Texas elected Sam Houston president, but also endorsed the entrance of Texas into the Union. The likelihood of Texas joining the Union as a slave state delayed any formal action by the U.S. Congress for more than a decade. In 1844, Congress finally agreed to annex Texas. On December 29, 1845, Texas entered the United States as a slave state broadening the irrepressible differences in the United States over the issue of slavery and setting off the Mexican-American War. December 30, on this date in history in the year 1968, Led Zeppelin recorded live for the very first time. Within a year, they'd be big. Within two, they'd be huge. And within three, they'd be the biggest band in the world. But on December 30, 1968, the quartet of British rockers preparing for their fifth-ever gig in the United States were using propane heaters to keep themselves and their equipment warm while they waited to go on as the opening act for Vanilla Fudge at a concert in a frigid college gymnasium in Washington State. A few serious rock fans in attendance had at least heard about the new band formed around the former guitarist from the now-defunct Yardbirds. But if those fans even knew the name of this new group, they might not have recognized it in the ads that ran in the local newspaper. The Spokesman Review of Spokane, Washington, ran an advertisement on this day in 1968 for a concert at Gonzaga University featuring the Vanilla Fudge with Len Zeppelin, a concert of which a bootleg recording would later emerge that represents the first-ever live Led Zeppelin performance captured on tape. At the end of the now widely available recording known as Gonzaga 68, Robert Plant can be heard introducing himself and his bandmates, John Paul Jones on bass, Jimmy Page on guitar, and John Bonham on drums, to a smattering of applause. But some of those who were in attendance that day remember their reaction as being stronger. In a Spokesman Review article published 29 years after that night in question, Bob Gallagher, a teenage record store employee at the time, recalled the show's opening number, Bonham came out and started drumming on Train Kept a Rolling, Gallagher said, and everyone went holy crap. There was nothing raw or unled Zeppelin-like about the sound captured by an unknown Gonzaga student on a small portable tape recorder that day. The Gonzaga 68 bootleg features the band performing tight and thrilling versions of some songs that are now considered classics, but were then unknown to those in attendance. Indeed, halfway through the set, Robert Plant introduces one number as follows. This is an off-album that comes out in about three weeks' time on the Atlantic label. It's called Led Zeppelin. This is a tune called Dazed and Confused. December 31 On this date in history, in the year 1961, Kennedy and Khrushchev exchange holiday greetings. President John F. Kennedy issues a statement, sending his sincere wishes and those of the American people to Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and the people of the Soviet Union for a peaceful and prosperous new year. It was the height of the Cold War, and the United States and Soviet Union were locked in a nuclear arms race. Citing 1961 as a troubled one between the two superpowers, Kennedy said that it was his earnest hope that 1962 would see improved relations between the two countries. Kennedy then told Khrushchev he believed the responsibility to achieve world peace rested on the two men's shoulders. Kennedy's message came in response to a December 29 message from Khrushchev that carried his hope that 1962 would be a threshold year for taking efficient steps in the cause of liquidation of centers of military danger. Khrushchev was likely referring to tensions over the ongoing division of the city of Berlin into democratic and communist sectors. In August 1961, It was Khrushchev's government that approved East Germany's decision to construct a physical barrier, the Berlin Wall, between the two sectors to stop communist-ruled East Germans from defecting to the West. Although Kennedy and Khrushchev both pledged cooperation, as 1961 came to a close, the two went on to play a dangerous game of chicken over Soviet missile sites in Cuba in October 1962, leading the world to the very brink of nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for December 25 through December 31. We are ending the year 2023. Happy New Year, everyone. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.